Okay. You want to get out your message outline. Have that to follow along. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, the second half of the chapter. We're far enough along that I start to see that the end is in sight. So we're getting to the last couple of months here. It's a long passage, and we're going to read it as we sort of go through and, and deal with it in more detail. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we do need it. We need to know what it means to be a church. We need to know the great warning that comes because of our sin. We need to know the wisdom we'll need when the world turns against us, as it seems to be doing. So we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would press this word home and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the most famous sermons in American history is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced. It puts such a fear of God's judgment and wrath into his congregation that on the spot, many people tore their clothes. They wept openly, repented of sin, and came to Christ right then and there. It was the spark of a great revival. And it's commonly thought that Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon with sadistic glee and pulpit-pounding shouting to a terrified and bewildered church. Now, I might do that, but Jonathan Edwards certainly didn't. Nothing could be further from the truth, at least according to tradition. Uh, Edwards quietly read his sermons from a manuscript which he held in front of his face, kind of like this. And he regularly preached in a flat, monotone voice for well over an hour. And yet the sheer logic and bold truth of what he said was used by the Holy Spirit to work powerfully in the lives of the people. He preached this sermon not out of concern uh, for God's wrath, but out of love for God's grace, which is freely extended to sinners who repent. Jonathan Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell so that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. And this intense concern of Jonathan Edwards to teach about hell so that people might desire heaven puts him in good company with the preacher who wrote to the Hebrews a long time ago. See, the stakes for this little Hebrew Christian church, the stakes for the New England church of Jonathan Edwards and the stakes for Potomac Hills are all the same, heaven or hell. And so here in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 39, we're given a glimpse sort of a picture of the difference. Because of what Christ has done, because the things of Christ are better, because the things of Christ are eternal, because the things of Christ are perfect, because of all the things that Christ is for us, we're welcomed into his heaven. But then there's this tremendous warning about rejecting Christ and facing the reality of hell. And finally, there's wonderful wisdom given to us as a reason 
for receiving Christ. So please turn with me to Hebrews 10, uh, starting at verse 19, and we're going to start with a word of welcome. A word of welcome, that's the first blank there in your outline, I hope. Verse 19, please listen carefully. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, or as you see the day drawing near. Something unique going on here in these verses and it's easy to miss. We have to look very carefully at how the different sections connect because they're very, very different. And so we have to find what, what connects these three sections in this passage. So we're going to start with a great reality. A great reality. There is this special movement that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes all through chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. In a sense, he starts with a indicative, a statement of who we are, and then eventually he goes to the what we do, the imperative, the command. And we see that throughout this section. Notice in verse 19, it starts by saying, we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And then in verse 22, it says, we draw near to God through the blood of Jesus. The great reality in this passage is that we have divine access. Because of Christ, we can enter into God's presence. His death on the cross opened the new and living way for us. Previously, access into God's presence was found in the innermost room of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And it was restricted to the high priest once a year, and the entranceway was barred by a huge curtain. And that's awful, because we need that access more than anything else. That's what changes you. I'm selfish. When I get near the holiness of God, it gets me out of my selfishness. Or I'll be mean or impatient, but when I get near the love of God, it melts me into mercy. When you get near God, it transforms you. It changes you. But in the Old Testament, you couldn't get near. You couldn't get access. However, upon the tearing of Christ's flesh on the cross, the curtain blocking access to God is torn from top to bottom. Christ was our sacrifice for sins on the cross. And the curtain was torn at the temple, and Hebrews 10 says the curtain is his flesh. And because Christ is our sacrifice, we now have access to the throne room of God. Now, earlier in Hebrews 4, we're told, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And now that we know how we can do that through the curtain of his body, and you, here you have the writer to the Hebrews saying, yes, through Christ, through the blood of Jesus, 
We can come into the presence of God. We can draw near. We have access. Now, the second part of this great reality is that Christ continues to serve as our great high priest. He stands as our advocate. We no longer need a human priest to be the mediator between God and us. Christ is the mediator. He's our advocate. He's the one who prays for us, who pleads our case, who secures God's mercy and grace for us. And this is why they can be so confident, because Christ is both the curtain providing access and the priest serving as our advocate. It's the same reason uh, that we should be confident because of Christ. We can enter into God's presence boldly and without fear. That's the confidence that comes from having access to Christ, uh, access to God with Christ as your advocate. So that's the great reality. We not only have Christ as our advocate, as our great high priest, but through him we have access to God, divine access. That's a new and dramatically different thing. But always with great reality comes great responsibility. There's three parts to the responsibility that we now have. The first one is to draw near. We're told several times in Hebrews to draw near. Now that we have access to God, we have to take advantage of it and actually use it. Knowing that the door you want to walk through is unlocked doesn't make any difference until you actually walk through it. In the same way, knowing that Christ gives you access to God doesn't help you if you don't use that access and draw near to God through what we call the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, the scriptures, worship, the sacraments. So the second part, the first part is to draw near. The second part is to hold fast, hold fast to our hope. For so many people today, hope is simply a mindless optimism that things are going to get better. But it's not supposed to be that way for the Christian. For the Christian, hope has substance. Hebrews 6, we're told, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our hope is secure and steadfast because it's grounded in Jesus, in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. So draw near, hold fast, and the third part is to be involved with each other. Verses 24 and 25 we read, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's some unique words in these two verses. The first word that's translated as meet together is a Greek word, episynagoge, which we get our word synagogue uh, from. It means a congregation. And what's a congregation? I mean, you can have a collection of people or a congregation of people. There's a difference. A collection is a bunch of people who come together to hear a speaker or go to an event. But a congregation's a different thing altogether. I think a good analogy is a collection is like a bag of marbles. They're all sort of slipping and sliding all over each other. They're all together, but they're all in the same bag, but they're not connected. Congregation is much more like a cluster of grapes. 
It looks a little bit like the bag of marbles, but all the grapes are organically related to each other. A congregation is a community in which all aspects of each member's lives touch. You don't just come together to hear a speaker. You eat together, you pray together, you learn together, you love together, you serve together, you confess your sins to each other. The key to understanding what Christian community is, is in the next little word. It's actually one Greek word, comes out as two words in English, and it's the term one another. Our text says, let's stir up one another. Let's encourage one another. This word means when you come to church, you go not just to be taught and not just to worship or be shepherded. You go to teach one another, to counsel one another, to confess sins to one another, to admonish one another, to bear burdens and weep with one another. It's a mutual thing. It's a participation thing. You're not supposed to come and just watch. And what's so important to realize is many ministers, myself included over the years, have taken verse 25 and said, look at that. Don't neglect meeting together. That means go to church. And it kind of does mean that. But let me ask you a question. Here you are in a church service. Are you stirring up one another to love and good works? Are you encouraging one another? Because that's what you're told to do when you meet together. It's that deep spiritual friendship between brothers and sisters in Christ in which you get into each other's lives. It's hard to do in the middle of a sermon. It's not hard to do at fellowship lunch. You let each other into your lives. You open up about your hurts and your problems and your needs. You hold one another accountable, and you really get involved with one another. And these verses are saying that's what you dare not neglect. You could come to Potomac Hills every single week and pat yourself on the back. I go to church every week. But if you don't do any of the one another stuff, then you're not really obeying this text. There's a reason that at the very end of our bulletin, it says one another time. You may have forgotten that's there. Now I told you earlier, there's an important movement in the text. And I want you to see it. In verses 19 to 22, he's talking about how we have access to the presence of God. And then he immediately turns around and says, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. What? Where do you access the holy place? Where do you draw near? How does the presence of God actually come into your life and make you the person you ought to be? Through community, or according to this text, through the congregation. It's not simply praying by yourself. It's through community, through the congregation. Don't quit on the church. People have a thousand reasons to stay away, not just from worship, but from the congregation, chief of which is just plain laziness. But coming to worship with fellow believers is important in maintaining your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We meet Jesus in a special way when we meet together. And yes, it is true that a person doesn't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you don't have to go home to be married. But in both cases, if you don't, you're going to have a pretty poor relationship. When he says, don't neglect meeting together, he's talking about all of that one anothering stuff that is what binds us together as a congregation. And you actually have to get together to do the one another stuff. But after this welcome, after this encouragement, there's a dramatic shift. He changes tact and he gives us a word of warning starting in verse 26. And it's a word of warning. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, not doing all that one another stuff, neglecting meeting together, not stirring up one another to love and good works, not encouraging one another, but if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Some of the hardest words in the scripture right there says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Shades of Jonathan Edwards here. These are hard words. Because what they're warning us about is a great rejection. A great rejection. What we're being told here is that deliberate and continual sin... Not just personal sin, but regarding the congregation, is nothing less than open rebellion against God and His Word. It's being given to the person in the church who knows the truth but doesn't know Jesus. Perhaps it's for someone here. You come to church, you hear the Word, you do all the right things, but you've never come to the point where you're willing to face your own sin squarely. There is no repentance and faith in Christ. You know church, but you don't know Jesus. This is not an inadvertent or ignorant sin. It's an intentional choice. It's a sin that only church people can commit. And if you're in this camp, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin because you've rejected the one and only sacrifice of Christ. Imagine you come into this sanctuary. I know it's a big auditorium, but on Sundays it becomes a sanctuary. And imagine you're the only one in the room. And Christ has died on the cross for you. And his blood is being poured out for you in this sanctuary. And at some point the floor of the sanctuary is covered with blood. And it's filling up fast. And you find the whole thing distasteful and repugnant and insulting. You think it's of no value and a waste of time. And so in selfish arrogance and anger, you turn your back on Christ and storm out of the room, literally trampling the blood of Christ 
as you walk out. And you get to the back doors. And in total indignation, you fling them open only to find yourself face to face with the living God. You had better hope that the blood of Christ that you trampled behind you comes rushing over you in a great flood because otherwise you're about to find out what it means when we read that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible tells us at the very end of John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, if you reject Christ, then you will not see eternal life, for God's wrath will continue to be poured out upon you. And hell is eternally painful. Thankfully, the writer to Hebrews doesn't leave us there. He reminds us that there's another option. And so he gives us a word of wisdom, verse 32, a word of wisdom. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." You only have to pick up the newspaper, any news magazine, even just scroll through Facebook to realize it's going to get a lot harder for Christians in this country. Difficult days are coming our way. But this text says that we can persevere. And to do that, it provides us with a great reason. You have a great reason to stand your ground in difficult days. First of all, you have to realize the church has been standing its ground in the face of persecution for thousands of years, and the church still stands. Its persecutors can only be found in the history books, but the church still stands. Why? Because for the last 2,000 years, Christians have known that they themselves had better and lasting possessions. Everything Christ offers is perfect. Everything Christ offers is eternal. Everything Christ offers is better. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's as if he's taken a scale. And on one side, he's put all the problems and illnesses and sufferings and discouragement that we have to face in this life. And he's put it on one side of the scale. And of course, the weight of all of our problems bring that side of the scale crashing down. But then he takes the future glory that we'll have when we're with the Lord forever in heaven, and he puts that on the other side of the scale. And what happens? You think the scale evens out? 
No. The other side of the scale comes crashing down because now our problems are weighed in the balance and found wanting. They can't even begin to compare with the glory that will be ours in Christ. So with all this in mind, what do we do? And for that answer, we go back to the beginning of our text to be reminded that this great reason for Christ demands a great response. Knowing that Christ is better and Christ is eternal and Christ is perfect, we're encouraged to keep going, to have a great response to the gospel in the face of adversity. A great response because our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Jesus. That we can respond in perseverance and be steadfast and be committed to what God tells us to do because God keeps his promises. God has always kept his promises. You go all the way back to Joshua, and it says, not one word of all the good promises the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And finally, we can respond with confidence and perseverance because of the promise of Jesus himself of his great return. The great hope of the church is in the return of Christ. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which the Bible says we are to do until he comes. It's a great reminder of his great sacrifice and yet the great hope of his great return. In light of coming to the Lord's table, here's a few quick reminders of what we should be doing. First again, draw near, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Receive Christ by faith. Trust what he said. Have faith in what he did. Come to Christ. He himself is inviting you. He invites you to come to him, and he invites you to come to his table. Jonathan Edwards said, we're like spiders hanging by a thread over the gaping mouth of the fires of hell. And there is nothing we can do save call on the name of Christ. So call. So call. We need to draw near. And then we need to hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to the hope we have, the hope that is Christ, and the hope that we have looking forward to the day of his coming. As it says in Titus 2, Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself from, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Draw near, hold fast, and keep going. Verses 24 and 25, keep going. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Remember that you're part of the congregation, the body of Christ. So keep going. Keep encouraging one another. Keep stirring up one another to love and good deeds. Keep meeting together. Remember, we gather together to glorify God, not just in worship, but we certainly do that, but in all these other ways of encouraging and stirring one another up. Um, is a way of glorifying God, all the one another's in the Bible. And there's actually like 40-some of them, depending on which translation you have. Um, 
Those are all ways to glorify God. The Apostle Paul prayed this way. He prayed this way for the church. He prayed this way for the church in Ephesus. He prays this way for the church of all times, including ours. It says, Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The great truths of God found in the Bible are best learned together with all the saints. We gather to worship and hear from God together. And the writer to the Hebrews is pleading with his people not to make such a grave mistake as absenting themselves from the church because he knows they may not survive if they do that. While the rewards of heaven are eternal and perfect, the consequences of rejection are also eternal and painful. He knows that it will take all of us for each of us to make it. Let me say that again. He knows that it will take all of us for each of us to make it. So encourage one another with these words. For we really don't know the power of encouragement. The writer to the Hebrews has the audacity to say, if you believe in the blood of Jesus, if you ask the Father to accept you, not, only, uh, not, not just because of your good deeds, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, you have his acceptance. There is no condemnation for you. You know what that means? It means you can draw near. But furthermore, it means that you're in the inner ring. C.S. Lewis gave an, uh, an address years ago called the inner ring. And in that address, which I think is brilliant, because he's brilliant, you should read him, it's great. He said one of the great driving motivations of the human heart is the desire to be in the inner ring. We need to feel we're on the inside of some group that we admire or we can't live with ourselves. It's why a lot of scholars, even though they're working hard on their scholarship, are not just after the scholarship. Their biggest concern is to get in the inner ring of the academic elite. They want to be accepted by the academic elite. Sees people working hard to make money, but it's not about the money. They want to know they can get into that club or they can get into that group because then they're in the inner ring. He sees street gangs. What are street gangs? Kids desperate to know that they belong to the inside group, the inner ring. And this desire makes us miserable because we feel like unless I'm on the inside of some ring of people that I really respect and I like. I don't really know who I am. I'm just so insecure. And what happens is you despise people who are outside of the ring that you're trying to get into and you envy the people who are inside the ring that you're trying to get into. We all want to be in the in, inner ring, that inside group. You want to say, I'm on the inside. I really know what's going on. 
unlike the rest of you peons. We won't actually admit that, but that's a driving motivation for us. We don't just want to belong. We want to be in the clique. The assurance of salvation in verses 19 through 22, the great reality, is the basis for this wonderful community in verses 23 through 25, which is our great responsibility. Why? Because you know by the blood of Jesus, you've been admitted to the ultimate inner ring. Do you know what the ultimate inner ring is? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're accepted by the only person who counts. You can go in, you can have confidence, you can find grace and mercy, and when you know you're that loved and you're that accepted, that destroys this need to get into the inner ring. If you don't know you're saved by God's grace, if you don't know that he loves you, if you don't know uh, that he's accepted you, then you have to desperately find that stuff somewhere else. So what do you do? What are your relationships really about? Let's be honest. You don't hang out with people for their sake. You hang out with people who make you feel good about yourself. That's why you friend those people. That's why you hang out with those people. And the people that don't make you feel good about yourself, you disdain them. You think they're boring. This is all about me. Why? Because all your relationships are about you until you know you're in the inner ring. And once you know that, then your relationships can be about the other person. Because you're not relating to them to have them make you feel good about yourself. You already feel good about yourself because you've drawn near. You already have confidence because of what Jesus has done, that you'll never be forsaken, that he loves you completely and unconditionally and accepts you totally and completely, and that transforms not just your relationship with him, but your relationships with everybody else. So the big question is, how can I know that? How can I be so sure that he loves me like that that I'm really, really on the inside. Well, what's the wages of sin? Don't give me the answer that you first comes to mind that you probably have in your head, although it's true. Because the ultimate wages of sin is death. But what are the immediate wages of sin? Let me tell you, if you lie, if you cheat, if you're cruel, if you're selfish... The first result, the first wages of sin, the immediate wages of sin, is always isolation and aloneness. Sin kills community. Sin disrupts relationships. When you lie, you have to hide from the people that you lied to because you're afraid they could find out the truth. You have to cover up. If you're cruel, you alienate people. The wages of sin is isolation. The wages of sin is to be forsaken. The wages of sin is to be horribly and terribly alone. Those are the immediate wages of sin. And on the cross, when Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the straw that broke him. Yes, he'd been betrayed by his friends, and he'd been rejected by the people, but now he was forsaken by the Father. Why? He got the isolation and aloneness that you and I deserve. He got what your sins and my sins deserve. 
He lost all community. He was utterly forsaken. On the cross, Jesus received both the immediate wages of sin and the ultimate wages of sin. And do you know what that means? Because Jesus was forsaken in your place, God will never forsake you. Everything you deserve fell on Jesus, and now he will never, ever forsake you. You can know that. You can know he loves you like that. That will change your relationships. Do you not want a community like that? Do you not want to be part of a community that acts like that? You know, I want you to know that over the 18 years I've been here at Potomac Hills, I've seen plenty of examples of this. Glimpses, flashes of this. But we're nowhere near where we need to be. We have to draw near with full assurance of faith. Understanding the meaning of the blood of Jesus. Experiencing the entry into the inner place. And then that, let that transform your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with each other, and build the kind of community that you and your friends will want to be a part of. Think about that as we prepare to come to his table. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes. Every Sunday we come, we hear your word, enable us to see our sin, and then to see Jesus. Thank you for giving us this time now, this Lord's Supper, to not only draw near to you, but to draw near to each other. Make us the community that we should be because of the holiness and because of the love and because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and make our hearts believe, no matter what's going on in our lives, that Jesus is better. Amen and amen.